Second of all, these people don't dream about being rich. They dream about being able to watch their kids swim in a pool without worrying that they'll have to have a hysterectomy at the age of 20, like Rosa Diaz, a client of ours, or have their spine deteriorate, like Stan Bloom, another client of ours. So before you come back here with another lame-ass offer, I want you to think real hard about what your spine is worth, Mr. Walker or what you might expect someone to pay you for your uterus, Miss Sanchez. Then you take out your calculator and you multiply that number by 100. Anything less than that is a waste of our time. Welcome to The Great Indoors, a podcast where we look at the technological implications brought about by the next industrial revolution and how this can potentially help solve the bigger problems facing humanity. I'm your host, Matthew Roberts, and joining me as ever is my co-pilot and producer, Larissa Yee. Now, in that timeless opening clip there, you heard the actress Julia Roberts, uh, no relation, <laughs> depicting an American legal clerk, consumer advocate, and environmental activist known as Erin Brockovich in the movie of the same name. Now, Julia won an Oscar for her role, and the movie, despite being 20 years old, believe it or not, is a classic, and one that feels more relevant today than ever before. Now, without creating any spoilers for you, This true story is about a young mother, twice divorced, with no legal qualifications, who takes up this momentous legal battle with a huge corporate entity that is basically poisoning the water supply for the inhabitants of Hinkley, California. Erin does not conform with the stereotypical image of a legal professional. She has to juggle this intensive fight with her responsibilities as a single mother, and she also has to overcome a degree of sexism, misogyny, and condescension. The beauty of this story is that Erin's personability, charisma, intelligence, and stick-to-itiveness overpower these dated prejudices and misconceptions. What is stick-to-itiveness? I hear you cry. Well, that's what we'll discover today. Now, as this is the first episode of season four, I'm so pleased, excited, and unbelievably honored to introduce our guest, Erin Brockovich herself. Now, the first time I met Erin, I was completely struck by her passion, charm, and fortitude. Erin's own mother said her greatest asset was her stick-to-itiveness. This means dogged perseverance, fortitude, and persistence. Now, it's always nice to learn new words, particularly English ones that originated in America. Though, if you really want to understand what stick-to-itiveness means, then just listen to this episode with Aaron, because this incredible quality shines through and in these difficult times is one we can all learn from. Now, since the story of uh, Hinkley, California, Erin has gone on to continue her activism around the world to the present day and has also written several books, the latest one being Superman Is Not Coming, which was released in August of 2020. So it's my pleasure to welcome the one and only Erin Brockovich to TGI today. So this is the season opener, season four of The Great Indoors. And I really don't think we could have started with a better guest than we have today. So I'd like to welcome, for this first episode of the season, Erin Brockovich. Erin, welcome to The Great Indoors. Hello! It's great to be here with you in The Great Indoors. Awesome, great. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. And where are you enjoying The Great Indoors today, Erin? Where are you in the world? So, well, I just, I'm just getting back home. I've been out. I was in uh, Utah and Vegas, back home in Agoura Hills, California. Uh, and I've spent a lot of the last eight days in the great indoors because the great outdoors has been way too cold. <laughs> for my I'm not a cold weather person. Now, we're going to start. We always ask sort of typical questions that we, we do each week. And we're going to start this new episode, well, this new season, Aaron with a new question that we'll ask all our guests. So you'll be the first person to answer this. And it's very open-ended. But as we bring you on, as we introduce you, 
what would be your intro music? What would be the music that you would like to come on to that you think defines you in some way? Well, oh gosh, that's a hard question. It could be a lot of things. It would depend on my mood. You know what just like suddenly struck me? I don't know why I was in that moment. Gosh, what's that old song from Helen Ray? I am woman, hear me roar. I am strong. I could think of so many other th- other songs, but it is weird that just popped into my head. So let's, that's, that's a perfect beginning, a perfect intro. Now, look, you're a household name in many respects, Aaron. Everybody knows your story and, and admires uh, everything you've done. But just for our guests that don't know, how did you get involved with the with the whole environmental activism? Because I think when you when you got involved with it, it wasn't quite as should dare I say fashionable as today? Well, if you have re- seen the film in the beginning, uh, Julia Roberts was in a car accident. You know, her outcome for that in a jury trial didn't go well. And so she needed a job. And that's really exactly what happened to me as well. I had been in a car wreck up in Reno, Nevada, where I lived. Ended up moving here, had to have a C5, C6 disectomy was in a neck brace for like nine months. And when I got down here to California, that's where I met the famous biker dude, George. George knew that I'd had the car wreck. I didn't have a car because it had been totaled. And he had had a slip and fall and had used the law firm Massery and Vitito. And he thought that I should meet with them, certainly to try to help get a settlement for my car so I could get another car. Uh, When I got recovered, uh, went to Reno, Nevada for a trial. I had a jury trial and uh, we lost. The jurist just said I was young and healthy and go get a job. So when I came back to California, I needed a job. And you saw in the film, Julia Roberts begging Ed, in a way I begged Ed or coerced Ed, whatever I had to do to get a job. I I could be a great assistant. I'm a great typist. Uh, I love to, you know, snoop and research. So after maybe some begging, um, Ed hired me. And when I first started with him, I worked with a lot of clients he had that had workers' comp injuries. Ed came into the office one day with an archive box, and that was the file of Roberta Walker that started the Hinckley case. And as in the film, you saw me snooping through those records. The last thing Ed wanted to do was hire me because he thought I would be trouble. (laughs) And if he were still alive today, he would tell you she ended up being good trouble. But (laughs) I don't always take no for an answer. Um, I'm very instinctual. I don't think people know that about me. I'm connected and grounded in a funny way with the environment. And when I went out to Hinkley, there was a whole lot of things happening for me that felt very unusual. So I grew up as a dyslexic and I was often could see and observe things in a different way, but because it wasn't like the status quo, if you will, or didn't fit in that nice, neat little box that everyone understands, I was told that I was weird or different. And that just honed me in further into being connected in different ways. People would tell you that work with me, I'm spooked them in ways that I can sit in a office with archive boxes and I can just feel it. And I go to the right box where the information is that I need. All of these things that felt so odd to me or would be my downfall in my life were my gift. And I didn't realize that till I stepped foot in Hinkley, California. I looked around and I'm like, why are all the trees dead? You know, you're up in this beautiful desert area. Why does the energy feel so heavy? I could clearly see that 
the green water was not normal. I could clearly tell you I thought the two-headed frogs was absolutely weird. And I just had this sense, oh my gosh, I've been here before. My mom would always tell me to find my stick to itiveness. And boy, howdy, did I need that when I started my work in Hinkley. And stick to itiveness, you know, definition is a propensity to follow through in a determined manner, dogged persistence born of obligation and stubbornness. My mom taught me that life will require us to have stick to itiveness. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to start using that. My father came to my mind because I got in trouble when I was a kid for lying. I could feel the lie happening out there. I'm like, somebody knows something. Somebody's not saying something. And it felt like this perfect storm was beginning to brew just through that. I can feel something's wrong. I can see that something's wrong. And every time I would say something, people would go, oh, that's ridiculous. Or I could feel that like standard of conformity on me. Um, I don't want you to know what's going on out here. And I never like to be put in a box that way. So I will always punch through. So I started just punching through that. And I'm like, oh, come on, people. This is BS. This two-headed frog and green water situation is not normal. Don't tell me that. So that was just where everything broke out. And I look back on it all the time. You know, I learned again so much through this pandemic we're always so busy, you know, worrying about something that we did yesterday or what's going to happen tomorrow that are we ever really present? And in Hinkley, I was present. I was with it. And that gave me the opportunity to stop and not worry about yesterday or tomorrow, but to look around me and go, what the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's how the case began for me. I think they, they did a really good job kind of showing you that in the film. Yeah, it's a timeless movie. I, I And I must tell you, Erin, I showed my kids this week. My eldest daughter uh, is 12. Uh, and I said I was meeting you and I played her the movie. And she was fascinated. She was blown away. And, and you know, she's, uh, what do they call it now? Generation Alpha a digital native, but she loved it. And uh, I, I hope some of that stick to uh, if I got that right, will stick with her and, and, and my daughter. But it, it is such a great story, a, a wonderful story. Well, you know, we all have stick to And, you know, my mom used to always tell me, you, you have to learn and you can learn that at a first try, you don't give up and go away and, and find that stick to So it's, not something we're born with, but it is a skill that you can absolutely develop and not be defeated. There was more times that we could have been defeated. But what I do when I get like that is I cut myself a break. And instead of just keep hitting my head against the wall, I back away from it for a minute. Even if it's a day, I may need to lay down on the floor and cry for an hour. I just need to get it out so I can come back in with a a clear mind and go at it again. There is an interesting little story not everyone knows about how the film came to be. When I was doing my work in Hinkley, I was seeing a craniologist and a chiropractor because I was still having ongoing issues after the car wreck and that big neck surgery. Whenever I went in to get a treatment, you know, Pam Dumond would be working on me and that's who I was seeing, would always ask me, you know, why do you have mud on your stilettos? Or where have you been in a short miniskirt with mud on your stilettos? And why do you have an ice chest in the back of your car full of two-headed frogs? <laughs> so <laughs> I started sharing stories with her when she was doing my cranial work about Hinkley and Chrome 6 and what was going on and the people, etc. What I didn't know was that she was also treating a woman whose husband was Danny DeVito's partner at Jersey Films. So she was intrigued with the stories. So one day Pam 
brought it up. Would you like to meet this woman? And I'm like, you've been sharing these stories with her. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I met Carla and the thing was for her and for Jersey films, the idea that somebody that certainly doesn't have the expertise to uncover a toxic case that is running around in stilettos collecting hazardous waste and mouthing off to people in a corporation. They were like, who is this person? But I, I love the way you say that you had a, a moment of presence. You were aware of everything that was going around you, almost a sixth sense, uh, something that needed to be investigated. Have you had that again, Aaron, in, in, in any other scenario or in any other environment where you thought, you know, following the Hinkley case, where you thought there's something not right here as well? Oh, absolutely. Almost everywhere I go in, in these situations, it happens for me. It doesn't always happen when you think it's going to happen. I usually have to be there. But while we were finishing Hinkley, the exact same thing was happening in Kettleman City, California, against Pacific Gas and Electric for another chromium-6 contamination. That settled in 2005. And Ed once again was like, Aaron, you're causing trouble. Um, and I create what's called a hot doc book. So I will get all my information and I will take their documents and actually end up using them against them because I work backwards so I can find out 20 years ago, wait a minute, the levels were this high. You know, when we get into these contaminated cases, the level of contaminant didn't just show up yesterday. It's a lower number of a higher number back in time. So I'm on that hunt. So I create these hot doc books. And even when I did, Ed was like, there's not a case here. Let it go. I'm like, mm, no, I can't do that. So I went behind his back to Walter Lack who was his partner, <laughs> and Walter yeah. took the case. Um, and it was an identical Hinkley. They had just done it again. You know, we are water, you know. When I'm lost, I go back to my source, and that's oftentimes water. And you can feel water. There's a presence. And so when I'm feet on the ground, boots on the ground, I can feel it, and I, I will find a water well. I was up in New Hampshire a couple of years ago, and we're up there in that northeast quadrant right now because this PFOA, which is Teflon, and the PFOS, which is the you know flame retardant materials, and the AFFF, the firefighting foam, it's very heavy in that area, um, and it's it's the largest contaminant I think we're going to see in the history of this country, if not the world. But even before I embarked upon that, walking the rivers in the woods up there, it's dark. You can feel it. It's almost like the water is telling you I'm in pain. I get such pushback on that. Um, but every single time, I'm on the money there, if you will. So I, I feel so bizarre sometimes saying this. Um but it's real. It's true. And I, and you know, science has got my back on this one. You know, your second brain is your gut. And I will tell you, moms in particular are really tuned into that. They know when their kids are lying. They feel it in their gut. They know when something's going on. But more often than not, we don't speak up and we don't speak out because someone's going to tell you, oh, that's ridiculous. Or if that's true, you shouldn't say anything. You damage our property values. Or they hear exactly what I used to hear. You're not a doctor. You're not a lawyer. You're not a scientist. Your skirt's too short. Your hair is too blonde. Why are you wearing those shoes? You couldn't possibly understand that. And then we retreat back into ourselves with all the labels and judgments and perceptions and ideas. And we stop talking because we stop believing in what it is that we just can't let go of that is residing in our gut. It's another voice telling you something's wrong. And I just don't move away from that. I think that's what makes your story, like I said, it was timeless before. But it is that, and we spoke about this when we first met, Erin, it is the notion of conformity, right? And it's the notion of 
having to conform to people's prejudice or pre-ideas in order to do something. And I think you smashed through that, you know, that conformity barrier, if such, if such a thing exists. And I think in many respects, it's made it easier for people today to, to pursue what feels right to them without having to conform to existing ideals. Do you think it's, and I've made an assumption there, but do you think it's, it was harder for you when you were tackling the situation in Hinckley with conformity? Do you think it's easier today for people to act outside of what people would typically expect? Great question. I would tell you that I found it was easier back then and harder today. Look, we're all going through this. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of pressure. There's there's a lot of that going on. And people are pushing back on all kinds of different ways. So I think that I did the work. I stayed present. I uncovered information. I came back with facts and reports so people could have something tangible to look at and to read. And even when they did, there was a pushback on because, see, they didn't want to believe it. I had to respect that they had a different possible idea or opinion. And I would respect that. And I would let them sit with that. And I will tell you 10 times out of 10, when given the space and the time and not pressure on them, they would come to a conclusion based on what they read, what they were experiencing, what they learned, and they will come back. So the, the push and pull has always been in my life. And what happens when one side's just pulling and pulling and pulling and the other side's just like, boom, I, they let go. Well, the other yeah. side will just fall. And for me, that's this moment where we're locking heads like rams. <sighs> Look, we're not going to get anywhere. We'll probably never all at once agree on the same thing. But I do believe, and I have learned over and over again, if you can step back and be confident in what you know and what you've shared and give that information to someone else and give them the time to process what they need to, they'll come back you'll be able to have a greater conversation. When you were investigating what was happening in Hinckley, Aaron, this predated the internet, right? This You had to go through archaic paper files to pull that information out right and, and and when i watched the movie again with my kids i was amazed because it was just the beginning of mobile phones and you'd, you'd got this sort of brick cellular device that's right now if we look at where we are with technology now with access to information with scanners with electric pdfs the, the question first comes to my mind is would it have been easier with all that technology to do what you uncovered 20 years ago? That, that, that would be my first question. But the problem with the internet now is that information may be spurious or questionable, so it could take you into 100 different directions. Correct. But I think, you know, with, with social media, with the internet, how do you think that would have affected how you investigated and pursued the Hinckley case? I don't know that it would have had the same outcome. Uh, and for me, the difference is you don't get to be present if social media and technology is there. And I mean, you are not standing on the ground. You're not there feeling the dirt underneath your feet. You're not there feeling the pain of somebody who has cancer or their child and they don't know why. All of that, I think, is critical. I think the social media internet is a double-edged sword, and I don't rely on it for everything. It actually has its purpose, but I will still, things change when you hear a voice. 
and its inflections. Things really change when you're in person and you can see if they're upset or if someone's not going to look at you. I'll go in a room and just sit and I can find that whistleblower, if you will. They, they might not want to address you. You can feel the fear, the anxiety, the anger, the frustration. You can see it. You can experience it. And sometimes I feel like we hide behind the internet and social media. And we've become disconnected in a way because of that. I have to be with the community. I have to be out there and see it and feel it. Otherwise, you will miss it. But I think you're one of these people, Aaron, and we've met lots and lots of people when we've been doing this podcast. But you have this person ability that comes across with the Hinckley story, right? Your ability to engage with people and really empathize with them, that, that empathy and that understanding. And you're right. While social media can give you a platform, it takes away that human element completely. As, as we move into, you know, we're going to talk about the pandemic a little bit, because do you think that during the pandemic, when you lost that ability to interact with people personally, do you think there was an over-reliance on technology or do you think it helped us get through the pandemic? And, and how did it help you personally? And Because like I said, you're a personable person. You have a, a, an amazing uh, uh, charisma and, and aura about you. When, when, when that is taken away because you're stuck at home, how, how did technology help you? So, well, technology does help. And again, like I said, it's a double-edged sword. And I think it's uh, up to us how we learn to use it. I mean, it's so hard to decipher through all the bits of information out there. But I can get it quicker than I did back in the day where I had to walk into an agency and go through, you know, 900,000 different documents. But I enjoy that because it's a game for me. It's a challenge for me. And I'm not leaving until I have what I really know is in there. So I was going to share with you, there's nothing like, you know, when you're out in the field and you, you meet the, the bad corporate entity, right? There's so much more fun in person to go, oh, are you for real versus being on the internet thing? It's just, it's so worth it. So I think we have to learn how to use this magnificent tool. So when COVID first hit, I was terrified. I mean, all my work, all of our work, it just stopped. And I found myself in this situation, oh my gosh, you know, how long is this going to go on? You know, when does the, the income stream come back? What am I going to do? Uh, I was scared. And I learned that I became present again in my own life, going outside and listening to the silence again. And it was a place where I could kind of hear myself thinking again, or even recognize that I've been running around like a crazy person for 20 years, that I had missed all the birds that were nesting in my backyard and all the babies that were being born and just smelling spring in the air and the warmth of the sunshine, I was like, oh my gosh, where I'm usually one who always is of mind that I am present, had a moment where had I really not been present. So I really spent the next six months at home looking around, where have I been? I wasn't even too worried about the future. I was glad that I was healthy. I was glad yeah. I wasn't sick. I was appreciative that I was safe. Gratitude, humbleness, all of those things really captured me again. And how do you feel now? Now we're coming out of it. Do you feel that you've had a respite, that you have a, an enthusiasm, a zeal for your next project? Um, yes, uh, but I've been moving around quite a bit. So in uh, August 2020 is when I released my book, um, Superman's Not Coming, Our okay. National Water Crisis and What We the People Can Do About It, which <laughs> I was like, I'm not sure how well this is going to go. It was right in the middle of the uh, Democratic and Republican conventions with our current president, Biden, and former president, Donald Trump, in the middle of a pandemic. 
I'm like, I am not yeah. sure how this is going to turn out <laughs> at all. And that is where technology really kicked in for me, which yeah. is something that I've always utilized. I was really never one to be on Facebook or social media because I was out. I like to be out. And I thought my brain in the beginning was going to break doing this technology. I was just like, I, I just, I just don't think I can possibly do this because I had all these book tours that were now zoom and these yeah. book clubs that were now zoom. And I hired someone to help me like get a Logitech camera that I'm on now and get some lighting set up. I, I enjoyed it. I saw a lot of benefits to it. And it wasn't the same, but it wasn't awful. I thought that it, it was a great bridge, if you will, from what we had been to getting through this pandemic in a way to see each other and still interact with each other and be able to satellite in to do an interview, if you will. That was a giant leap of a learning curve for me. And greater appreciation for this technology that had maybe been under underused, but I do think how we use it is really important. So yeah. now I find it a nice hybrid, if you will, between being out on the ground and with people, which I can still do, but there might be times where you can't, um, yeah. but I can still be there. Look, one of the things I was thinking about, and, and I don't know, you may have been asked this question before, Erin, but I think we're in this world of sequels and prequels and things always coming back in, in different forms. And, you know, when you look at your, you know, since the Hinkley, you've done a, a whole ton of really interesting stuff, right? As far as the work you've done, do you think there's a chance of a Erin Brockovich 2 movie? Well, that, that has already come up. So I uh, actually really? came up a few years ago uh, on the uh, Beverly Hills High School oil well situation. And so we signed a deal for a second movie. And I remember at the time then, uh, and I wouldn't know how Steven Soderbergh would feel about it today, but he said, you know, sometimes you have to be careful doing the sequel because if it doesn't go the way you want or something happens, people will remember that and not necessarily the first. So he he was a little hesitant, but we were scheduled to do it. And then the case settled and the decision was made. We wouldn't, wouldn't do another one. When the film first came out, I, I have to say this, and I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. Aaron Brockovich was not about me. It never was. Aaron Brockovich is about all of us. All yeah. of us that rely on our water and each other and our health, it, there's just no question. And I was glad that the movie gave us a platform to reach out to others. I'm glad that so many women I work with and moms in these situations who have sick children and their water's polluted or their air is polluted can say, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to find that Aaron Brockovich. I'm, I'm so proud of that, but we're all it. And we all have that opportunity. So the film just gave us a great platform to continue to reach out and educate and, and work with getting other people's stories told and seeing them rise has been fabulous, but yeah. it wasn't about me. This was about corporate greed. This was about something horribly gone wrong with the environment, our water and how that poisons us and what these people went through and to lose their health or a child. So this is about all of us. But I think you were a source, and you, you continue to be a source of in, inspiration for millions of people around the world. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But who was your biggest source of inspiration, Erin? Three people in my early life, my mom, my dad, and one of my school teachers. And my source of inspiration is even coming out in this current day environmental issues that we have and the, the plight that other families and women have that have risen up and changed it or have become an, a ginormous source of inspiration to me. Uh, and mm -hmm. I find them amazing and fascinating. And 
I'm their biggest cheerleader and they've become a huge source of inspiration to me. Now, and I mentioned it right at the beginning, the environment, there's a lot of issues in the world right now. I mean, we, we, we touched on it before. I mean, what's happening this week it depresses me immensely in, in, in Europe. And obviously the environment and climate change right now is the top of any agenda of, of, of world issues. What do you think people can do now? How can their voices be heard? What advice or, or even indeed, what are you doing now with this, this sort of macro uh, climatic existential disaster we have on the horizon? Oh, it's so difficult. And um, I, I've, I feel like everyone else would. It's so hard to get your story, your, your, your work, your voice, you know, an environmental issue out there when there's so many other ones hitting. And when I get to that place, what I have learned and I, I practice it right now, I will exhaust myself just pushing and pushing and pushing against a tide right now that there's such other things taking precedent that I have to turn to myself. And that's where I worry that we get lost and give up and go away. And I get very quiet and I become very present. And I have a program I talk about, RAM, Realize, Assess, Accountability, and Motivate. And boy, I thought we were spinning out of control when COVID happened. One of the last things I said was, the world is spinning faster and faster. There is more and more information, data, stories, tragedy, trauma, family issues, finances, just bombarding every one of us. And I'm like, we're going to end up being like this great computer system we have with all this data coming in. And when it can't process it, we all watch that little blue dot spin around and around and around and around. That's us. And if we can't, Deep process, boom, we're going to go down. I didn't predict COVID, but we went down. And here we are again. You got to know you. You got to own you. You got to believe in you. You got to embrace in you. You've got to have hope in you because it could be dark all the way around us. And there might not always be someone there to help inspire us or inspire you or lift you up but you have you and I will go very quiet into myself and I will find that space where it's dark. Now it won't be tomorrow. There is hope to disconnect for a moment from the noise. That's social media. That's the TV. Let me tell you what, I've got a couple of remotes that ended up in my pool and there's been a moment where I've thrown, you know, my, my daughter, you're going to answer the phone. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not. Boom. Just throw it right out the car window. No. Disconnect. You have to disconnect to reconnect. We are being inundated. And if we can be quiet and still, I believe this. Every one of us, that's an energy source. That's something that we all can pick up and feel. And we are so strong together in that hope, in that determination. And we may be in a bad moment, but we will not be here forever. We know that. History has taught us that. And how we become strong is when we are strong within ourselves. When you take a beat, take a breath, disconnect, rethink be still, go back outside, you know, appreciate spring coming, the flowers blooming. Life is always around us. If we can just stop to take the time and notice, that's where you'll find your inspiration again. And that's coming from your own voice and being there for yourself. The hope that we have and how we can collectively start getting in a cadence together and I believe that we will, we always have. But don't lose sight of the light when you're in the dark. And just turn inward and find that voice and find that hope.
you know, fear, one of the acronyms, I think we talked to you, uh, I talked to you earlier about that was um, false expectations appearing real. And I think that we get in our minds, there's so many thoughts and confusion and fears, and they're just that, they're thoughts. We don't yeah. have to let ourselves spin out of control. Absolutely. Beautifully said. Now, Erin, what's happening for you next? What's the next big thing on your on your horizon that you're working towards right now? Um, a lot of being able to teach uh, others about that mindfulness, a lot of keynote addresses and and that's what I work on that's what I teach in my environmental work it is going to be the PFOA the PFOS and the AFFF this is a really dark situation on top of other bad news going on but Houston we have a problem and this isn't a one town in Hinkley this chemical is in the water supply and in our aquifers in every single state in America. We are mobilizing into Maine right now where they have some of the highest PFOA and PFOS, which again is the, the Teflon and the, you know, uh, Scotchgard, all of that in the water. And this isn't just a contaminant in the water. This is called forever chemicals. It's almost impossible to remove it from the environment. The idea that this one chemical could destroy farming, it's in the food chain. And, and working in the state of Maine, that you could be potentially looking at an entire swath of this state alone and all the farming and organic farming is ruined. So my next journey and work will be to my retirement, this one chemical alone, going state by state. Yes, there's going to be lawsuits, but we have got to start looking at a system failure within our agencies. And how did we get here when you were warned decades ago there was going to be a problem? And correcting it, we're not we're not going to go forward into the future if we continue to use our practices of the past. You know, I started my work in Hinkley. I was a young girl. I was 30. And I started working out in Hinkley when I was 31. I'm now 61. And I'm still fighting the same battle. And, and you have moments where you win and moments where you don't. But I got to look beyond that. I have four grandchildren Wow. What is the future for them? What will be the legacy that we leave? So I'm going to continue the fight and it will be this chemical in probably every state in America and hope that we can bring everyone to the table. So that's the biggest ticket item I have that I can truly see me working on till I retire, if I ever retire. I just can't imagine being, you know, 92 and running around out there in a short skirt and stilettos screaming at everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I think you demonstrate that stick Erin. I think you could still be going well into your 90s for sure. And I hope you do for all our sakes, because I think it's it's a, an incredible, noble, uh, inspirational what you give to, to society and, and to individuals. So Know you, again, be strong in what you've learned, what you know, because there's always going to be somebody that questions you. There's always going to be somebody that ha perceives you a different way. It's like my mom taught me. You know what, Aaron? Just because others may choose to see you as a loser because you have a disability, you remember this. You don't have to choose to see yourself that way. You always have that power of choice. And that's where I see every single table turn. When that person is solid in what they know, what they've experienced, what they feel, what they found out, and how to speak out, and let those people take their shots at you. And remember, that's their insecurity and that's their negativity that they want to throw off on you. Don't let it stick. If you do, it'll sink your ship. But here's the that's other thing that has to happen on the other side that we've lost the ability to do. Listen, 
We don't like to listen to somebody else that may have a gripe or a beef, but listen, you might learn something about yourself. Hear what they're trying to say. I have learned over and over and over and over again in a community what they really want. They just need you to hear them. And when you do, the anger levels go down. I know this sounds corny. I just, I believe in those positive thoughts and they're, they're going to be there with me. And I got this and I'm going to go out and do it again. Perfect positivity, Erin. We're coming towards the end now and we're just going to finish with something that Larissa and I just created, right? And we call it, yeah, we call this TGI to go, right? And it's 15 rapid questions but you have a choice. All I'm going to do is give you two choices and you tell me which one is your preference. TGI to go. So let's start. If you're sitting comfortably, we'll start our first ever TGI to go. Okay, here we go. I think I know the answer to this first one. Dogs or cats? Oh, dogs. Yeah. Sun or snow? Sun. Los Angeles or New York? Oh, LA. Ah. Coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> yeah. Here's a, here's a tech one. Apple or Samsung? Apple. Julia Roberts or Matthew Roberts? <laughs> That's a trick question. Julia Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> my wife my wife would say the same thing. Absolutely. I, I the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Oh, oh, oh. Both. Can I say both? Oh, you can no. say both. You can say both. both. Absolutely. Yeah. AT&T. Verizon or T-Mobile? Bit of a tech one there as well. I've, and I've thrown in three. Well, I'm going to say AT&T, even though they've been uh, frustrating me lately, so I might go to T-Mobile. Wow. We'll, we'll let them know. We'll let them know. I'm sure they'll uh, they'll get it fixed. Well, I probably shouldn't have said that. My phone might get cut off today. <laughs> <laughs> Miami or Malibu? Oh... Two very different places. I, I'm going to have to go both because if, if I'm crazy, Aaron, I'm headed to Miami. If I'm okay. chill being present, Aaron, I'm down in Malibu. <laughs> Here's another one that, that, that's a bit of a, a British-American uh, contrast. James Bond or Jason Bourne? Oh, you're hurting me here. Oh, that's a Beatles Rolling Stone thing. Oh, no. Oh, both. But Jason Bourne, I got to tell you, really cool. Oh, very equal. Oh. Super cool. Paris or Rome? Oh, you are hurting me again. But I have to tell you, I might pick Rome. Okay. Good choice. Good choice. Uh, United or Delta? Oh, Delta. William Shakespeare or J.K. Rowling? Oh, again, um, <laughs> kind of depends where I'm at of my thoughts or my my energy or space where I'm at. I don't know. I, William Shakespeare. That's a good one. Uh, Superman or Batman? Well, I don't believe in either. Did you hear the title of my book, Superman's Not Coming? There you go. That's why we put that one in there. That's why we put that one in there. Maybe Batman is. I don't know. But probably not. No. Um, and... you know, you're... No. Super... No. Superman, Batman. Uh, you know what? I, I'm going to bank on us, you, the individual. And the final one, reading or writing? Okay, you do know you just ask a dyslexic how much we enjoy reading, so I'm going to tell you writing, which I do a lot of. Exactly, exactly. That's uh, the perfect answer, the perfect answer. So, Erin, look, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and the first episode of Season 4. I want to thank you very much for joining us. And is there any closing comments you'd like to give to our listeners just uh, as something for, for them to ponder on after they've listened to this episode? 
Well, thank you for having me. And I, I really enjoyed the conversation. And what I would just leave with anyone, I just, I get it. And I, I think we're all feeling the same thing. And woulda, coulda, shoulda, finger pointing and blaming all day long. It's going to get none of us anywhere. If you find yourself in that situation, be mindful, take a breath, take a step back. Sometimes you got to let it go, but you can come back at it tomorrow. I just want to leave a message. I know it's overwhelming. I think that we are all in the same boat. I really absolutely believe we're going to be okay. And I believe even more that we're going to be okay. Look, and the greatest of all warriors knows when to lay down the sword. And there's just a moment where the fight, lay it down, let it down, step away, reconnect, reboot, believe in yourself, believe in tomorrow, believe in us. I do. And I absolutely believe we're going to come out the other side and we're going to have a conversation five years from now and look back on this and go, man, we got through that by the seat of our pants. Maybe we did get by through the seat of our pants, but we will get through this. Well, that was quite an opening for season four and, and for 2022. I hope listening to Erin gave you the energy and inspiration that it gave us. Uh, I mean, her story is just incredible. Now, normally I would say read the book to understand the full story. But in this instance, I'm going to say if you haven't seen the movie, check it out and, and see if you can spot Erin herself in her cameo amazingly playing a character by the name of Julia R. Hmm, interesting. Now, in other news related to 2022 and following uh, our appearance last year in Los Angeles as the official podcast of MWC Americas, we will be the official podcast of Mobile World Congress 2022 as it moves to Las Vegas, Nevada. And if you attend, you might get a chance to meet Aaron in person. So please subscribe to our podcast and all the usual podcast channels. Leave a review or rating if you feel so inclined. It certainly helps us. And check out two other Amdocs podcasts that are brilliant and available now. The Future of Tech with Abishai Charlin and Points of View with our Chief Marketing Officer, Gil Rosen. Also visit our website, amdocs.com forward slash The Great Indoors to listen to all our other previous uh, podcast episodes and videos and uh, all other great assets on there. Now, we'll be back in two weeks for another edition of The Great Indoors. I'm Matt Roberts for Amdocs in Toronto, and have a great day wherever you are. <laughs>